For those who, uh, who don't know me, my name is Jeff Havisto, one of the uh, pastors here, and I'm uh, uh, excited to preach through this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be going through just the next section. We've been uh, going through the whole book. We did take a break for Easter, and we're uh, coming back. And so to begin with, actually, let me say this. So, you know, we just listened to this worship set, and the worship set was just amazing, just listening just listening to this and just and focusing on Jesus. And I was really kind of touched with that. And I started thinking about my message that I was about to preach. And I'm like, does it contain these elements of what we just did and that? And then Jesse came up and gave us that wonderful testimony about how God has been working in his life. And just an amazing thing that just really touches us where we are. And then I'm going to be talking about money. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, this just doesn't feel like it has that same spiritual dimension and that same, you know, heart of it. But in reality it is because Jesus says where our treasure is, there is our heart. And so we want to keep that in mind just as we go, just as we go through this, that this is applicable and it is in the same realm and it does decide or drives who we worship and where we worship. So let me just uh, start out. We're going to read the passage. It starts in chapter 5 and uh, we're starting in verse 7. I'm going to go through uh, 6, verse 9. A little bit of a long passage, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says this. It says, uh, actually, you know what? I do want to pray before we, before we start, just on, that, just on that same light of what I just mentioned. So, Father God, we come before you now, Lord, and we do pray that you will realize that money, Lord, can greatly affect our, our worship and can greatly affect our relationship with you, Lord. Because you told us, where... Our treasure is, that's where our heart is. So Lord, let us look at this, Lord, today as a way to worship you. And we ask your Holy Spirit that you might speak to our hearts, Lord, and let us just really see how money plays a role into our lives and how it does affect us and our relationship with you and our relationship with others, Lord. And just be with us this morning, I ask in your name, amen. All right, so beginning in verse 7, it says this. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's room, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for, to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of life that God has given him, for this is his lot. 
Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not remember, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet to God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many, many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet, he, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to that one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So as I started out with, today we're looking at money. And that's what this, that's what this section was about. And it seems funny um, to go to Ecclesiastes for it, right? Because Ecclesiastes oftentimes sounds negative. Sometimes it sounds cynical. Sometimes it's just downright depressing, it seems, when you, when you read the book. And so in some ways it seems like an unlikely place to look for um, instruction on money. But Ecclesiastes is God's word. And like all of God's word, this is the place to go. And you know, one of the things that Ecclesiastes does, and the writer of Ecclesiastes does so well, is he does a wonderful job of describing the world around us. He describes what we see and he puts words into it. He lets us know what is happening in the world, right? Because there is injustice. There are things that happen that just don't seem right that things shouldn't happen this way. We see bad things happen to good people. We see evil people prosper. We see innocent people oppressed. And the writer says, don't be surprised. We live in the fallen world. People are fallen, and we will see this. And so he is not at any time saying, don't care. He is not at any time saying, don't be angry at the injustice that you see. He is not at any time saying, don't try to help right the wrongs. He's saying just don't be surprised. This is reality and we need to see the way it is. So this morning what we want to do is we want to look at some of those descriptions that he uses to describe these people and as they relate with their money. And really when we do it, we want to see is there any of these categories that I fall in? Do I fall in this one or this one or that one? So that we can look at ourselves. Once we've looked at the descriptions, we're going to take a brief moment to look at the dangers that are common in all of these situations with money. And then finally, we'll look at what is the attitude that God wants us to have when it comes to our money. So to begin with, just to get you thinking kind of a practical, personal way, um, a couple questions. Do you have enough money? Are you content with what you have? Have you made mistakes with your money? Do you possess your money, or does your money possess you? So that's kind of where we're going. And... Uh, what we're going to be doing. And the way you want to do this is I kind of want you to picture a town or actually just a hill, hill overlooking. And there's a road that winds up this hill. 
And there's a variety of houses and of people. Some are big and some are small. The houses I'm talking about. Some of the houses are big, some of the people are small. No, wait, that didn't come out either, right? <laughs> houses are big, houses are small. Might go the same with people, I don't know. But we're not concerned about that piece. Here's what we're concerned about. We're going to take this walk up this hill. We're going to look at these different houses that are on there. And as we walk up this hill, every house is going to be a little bit nicer than the one before. Every house that goes up is going to have a better view that goes, that goes up. And when we get to the top, we're going to be able to look down this big valley, and we're going to see, not a valley, um, but we're going to see down that the ocean starts. So these people on the top, they have this view, this looking down, and they see the ocean right out there. But we want to take a peek into these houses, and we want to see, what are the houses like? What are the people like inside? Are they happy? Are they content with what they have? Do they rule their money, or does their money rule them? Do they worship God, or do they worship money? And so we're going to take a chance, and we're going to just kind of walk through this Ecclesiastes with kind of that in point. So we walk up the street. We start walking. The first house we see is small, and it's run down. And it really doesn't have a view at all. And clearly the people that live here do not have much money, and we can definitely categorize them as poor. And so we go in and we talk to them, and we hear their story. And in many ways, it's hard to hear what they have to say because they've been beaten down by circumstances. They've been beaten down by life and the things that have happened. Ecclesiastes 5.8, we're reminded of, and it says this, If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. One of the commentators says this about it, and I like the way he said it. Let's look at this. Um, he says, the preacher wants us to recognize locations in which the poor are oppressed by money grubbers, and with this with no just remedy. The plight of the poor is made worse as their rights are also trampled on. These conditions take place when middle managers, CEOs, and government officials each get caught up in power structures which serve the bottom line of financial production and gain. These leaders and brokers have their own jobs on the line if they're not able to report to the higher-ups an ongoing increase in revenue. For the official is watched by a higher, and, yet, and there are yet higher ones over them. In such a system, the ordinary worker gets used and misused in order to keep the dollar signs from falling. We know in reality that happens. It doesn't happen to everyone, but it is one of the things that, that it happens. And this is what he's trying to say. And see, the poor have struggles. They have worries. Um, scripture says that oftentimes they're, they're oppressed. They're, their rights are denied. And the preacher says, don't be surprised at this. Again, he's not saying don't care. And he's not saying that the government should not do something. Because this passage goes on. And in it, he talks about how blessed the people are um, when the king resists greed and control. And he says that when the king remains committed to cultivated fields. He says this is a good thing when the, when, when the king remains uh, committed to cultivated fields. So we hear that and we're like, I don't really get it. What, is, what does that mean? It doesn't really mean anything. But here's the deal. It means a great lot to these people who are listening to this because they're in this agricultural um, life and... Um, what happened was there was a law that God had passed, or God had given, I should say, um, to his people. And one of the laws was what you do when this harvest comes in. And so 
they would understand this. And this law that God set up protects all the people. It protects the owners, it protects the workers, and it also protects the poor people. So listen to this when the harvest comes in. This is Leviticus 19. It says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So God is telling the owners of the fields, leave some for the poor. Take care of the poor that are in the land. And he doesn't tell us not to care either. In fact, he tells us the opposite. In Deuteronomy 15.11, he says this, there will, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor that are in your land. And not only does God give instructions to these owners and to us, but he himself cares for the poor. Listen to these two verses from Psalms. Um, the first one says, The poor man called, and the, and, he, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 35.10 My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and the needy from those who rob them. One thing, too, about the, one of the struggles that we all have, but that the poor as well have, is that just because you're poor doesn't mean you don't think about money. We think of oh, the rich person and the greed and this and that. We think, okay, the poor person. But the people who struggle for money aren't not thinking about money. They're always thinking about money. Or it's one of the temptations, right? Do I have enough money to, to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, to buy food, to do these things? And so there's struggles that go on um, with this. And this is what uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. So we're going to move on from there. We're going to go up the street. We come to what looks like was one time a very nice house, but now it's kind of fallen into disrepair. The paint is peeling. The shutters are falling off. There's a broken lawnmower outside in the overgrown grass. And the condition of the house doesn't quite fit the house itself. And it doesn't fit the neighborhood that it's in. And so we go inside and we look around. And we see the same thing inside. That's outside. What happened to this house? What happened to these people? There's lots of rumors, and everyone is willing to tell us one, right? Some, some people say they just made bad business decisions. They lost all their money because of an investment or a bad decision or something else. Someone else says it's like, oh yeah, the guy was a, gamble, a gambler. He gambled all his money away. He left nothing, nothing at all. Other people say it's like, no, you know what? He was a faithful worker. He worked for the same company for years and years, for decades and stuff. And uh, somehow or another, the manager was like mismanaged his retirement fund, and now he doesn't have anything. We don't know what happened to this person, but we know either way that the money is gone. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to leave the kids. Listen to how the writer of Ecclesiastes puts this, starting in verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, sickness, and anger. 
Remember when I told you sometimes read Ecclesiastes, it's like, well, it's just kind of hard to read. It's just kind of depressing and stuff. But he's saying, look, these things happen. And this is where people end up being. And this is where this person is, right? Because people can lose their money from a couple different, I mean, from lots of different ways. But we can categorize it into two different ways. We can categorize it by something that the person did themselves or something that someone else had done that affected these people, right? If it's ourselves, it could be that bad business venture. It could be bad investments. It could have been mismanaging your money or our money. It could have just been squandering it away, and all of a sudden, all the money is gone. But it could also be someone else, right? It could be something that's outside of your control. Maybe you worked for the same company for years. You were dedicated, and suddenly they decide to downsize, which means people have to go. And you're one of the people that has to go. You've done nothing wrong. You've done everything right, and yet because of that, you have to go. And all of a sudden, there is no money. There's nothing for retirement. There's nothing left for the kids. And you're struggling. And there's harsh feelings that come with this, right? There's anger and there's bitterness. If this was because of something that someone else did at your company, that angerness and bitterness is focused towards them. If it's something that you did, it's focused towards yourself. And along with that, you get all of the um, regrets and all of the guilt that comes with that. If it was your fault, and it affects someone else. If you have a family, for instance, there's a lot of relational problems that come with that. And there's the chance of, you know, anger, accusations, bitterness, and biting are huge, right? That's why he, Ecclesiastes says, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. Again, he is not saying that there is no hope. He's saying, look around and see the way these are. And see this. He says, don't be surprised. And even like, I think twice in that passage, he even uses the words. He says this, yeah, twice. Verse 13 and 16. This is a grievous evil. 16. This also is a grievous evil. So it's not right, but he's saying these are things that happen. And it is evil. And it's one of these things that we live in this fallen world. So we're going to leave this house. And we're going to start climbing up a little bit higher. And we come to the next house. And we get to this house and we're like, man. This is a nice house. I love this house. I want this house. It's got a beautiful view outside. Um, there's a uh, you know, nice car in the garage. There's everything. It's just a nice, nice one, right? It's got a sports car out in the garage. They've got a swimming pool out there. Um, you go inside. There's like beautiful furniture everywhere. And it's like, man, this is what I want. If I had this, I would need nothing else. I could just sit back and just relax. What about the people who live there? Are they satisfied with what they have? If we look and say, they have it, are they satisfied with what they have? Is it enough? Let's listen to the writer of Ecclesiastes and see if it's enough. Starting in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to their owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The people who live here are not satisfied. Even though they have way more stuff than almost anybody else, they're still not satisfied. It's like John D. Rockefeller, This, and you may have heard this, Quote or not, but he was like the richest man alive at the time. The absolute richest man alive ever. There was no one richer than him. And someone asked him once, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. 
just a little bit more. The richest man in the world was not satisfied with what he has. Because if you love money, you will never be satisfied at all. You will never have enough. You will never be satisfied with your wealth. And the more you make, the more you spend. And you won't be satisfied because God did not create you to be satisfied with money. And God did not create you to worship money. God created you to worship Him, and God created you to be satisfied in Him. And if you worship money, and if you um, try to get your satisfaction out of money, you will always, always um, be disappointed. And you will never be satisfied. It simply cannot happen. And this is what he's saying. Um, we go on from there. We climb even higher. And we look at the next house. And we thought this other one was like amazing. This one was like beyond amazing. Absolutely stupendous. We just stop. Our jaws drop. And we just look at this house. It is amazing. Because that other house had a nice house and a nice pool and a sports car. This has got all of that stuff. Plus, it's got a whole bunch more. We look, at the, we look at the front, and it's like meticulously gardened. In fact, they have like a, like a team of gardeners that come in there, and there's flowers, and there's trees, and there's like water coming from here and going over there. We don't even know where it starts and where it stops, but we drive through, and it's just one of these amazing, amazing things. We kind of peek around the back. We think we might see a helicopter back there even. We turn around, and we look, and the view is absolutely stunning. It stretches way down, and we look, and we see... The, the ocean out there, and we see the boats, and they've got one of these little like telescopy things that look out. So we look into the telescope, and we see their yacht, and they're sitting on their yacht, and they're getting ready to go, and they're up there, and the, and the captain is like looking at a map and charting the course, and the first mate is getting him drinks and putting little umbrellas into him, <laughs> and they're all relaxed, and they're, and they're absolutely ready to go, these people have everything. There is nothing that they don't have at all. And we think, man, we would be so happy to be here, right? If we never, ever, we would never have to go on vacation because we would be on vacation permanently. And these people have this money in a totally right moral way. Rags to riches. They worked hard. They got everything. You couldn't find a skeleton in their closet if you looked for a year at all. There's nothing there. And everything they've ever wanted, they have gotten. You know the one thing they don't have? Joy. They do not have joy, and their possessions do not fulfill them. The dreams they chase and the dreams that they catch are empty and are meaningless. Let's look at the word again, starting 6, verse 1. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on man. God gives some people wealth, possessions, honor, so that they lack nothing. They lack nothing that their hearts desire. Listen to that. They lack nothing that their hearts desire. God doesn't grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless and a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and he does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than that man does. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Once again, I'm going to say this. The writer of Ecclesiastes uses harsh language. 
He's trying to make a point and he wants to make it in a way that really sticks. He's saying, look, if these people could live 2,000 years and they could have 100 children, but if they have no joy, they are no better off than the stillborn child. It is hard to hear that. And my heart goes out to those people who have had this happen to them because it is unbelievably difficult to go through. This language is harsh. And it's meant to be harsh, but it's not meant to be harsh who have undergone tragedy. It's meant to be harsh to those ones who have lived their life chasing money. And that's what they put above all other things. Listen to one of the commentators say this. He says this. For those who have miscarried children, this verse can wound or frighten at first glance. It can seem to us that the preacher speaks without, without human sensitivity to our pains. And it can also seem that the preacher is theologically inaccurate by speaking as if there is no heaven or light or comfort for such a child, but only darkness. But a closer reading reminds us that the preacher is using poetry to expose the deep fallacy in the godless, wealthy man's thinking. Those who love wealth and derive and do not derive from God the pleasure intended in God, but believe that, or they, they believe that they are blessed among men, men. They believe that they have achieved everything that a person could desire. And in contrast, the worst possible life, according to their way of thinking, is one that barely got started and never got to possess or to, or to attain these earthly treasures. How sad, such a person would say. But, but the preacher turns his view on its head. The stillborn child, though he, is, though he or she never had any money, never built a house, never saw the latest movies or tried the latest trends, is nonetheless at rest. Rest, and this with God, is the one thing the rich man still does not possess. His soul is now satisfied with life's good things. For all of his wealth, he possesses no contentment. Restless and unfamiliar with true joy, the wealthy neighbor is impoverished. The stillborn child possesses the riches of rest and provision with God that the wealthy neighbor knows nothing of. No wonder Jesus teaches us that it's hard for a man, for a rich man, to discern, enjoy, and embrace the kingdom of God. Those people have no joy. And they think that others are, are the ones without. And they look down on them. But God is, the Ecclesiastes is saying, what good is it? If you live 2,000 years, you have 100 children, you have no joy at all, what good is it, right? And so to have the, the live 1,000 years and the, you know, have 100 children, it was a way that they would have understood, you know, um, you know long life and, you know, many kids. So if, we, if you're Star Trek fans, think live long and prosper, right? So they're like, look, they're like, okay, live long and prosper. They're like, even if you live long and prosper, even if you live like 2,000 years, and even if you prosper, you know, so much, well, joy, it's like, what good is it? He says, this is meaningless. He says, this is absolutely meaningless. So we want to go from there. We want to think about what are some of the common dangers of wealth that he talks about, and then some of the other ones that we can think through Scripture. So there's many dangers to wealth or to money, whether you have a little bit or whether you have, you know, a lot. A lot or a little, it doesn't matter. These same things come through. First one, wealth is both addictive and unsatisfactory. Verse 10, 
He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's addictive in that we continue to think about it. We continue to drive. So much of our life is based with this, and yet there's no satisfaction with that. Wealth does not give you peace or rest, but instead it promotes worries over how you're going to maintain your wealth, how you're not going to lose the wealth. Um, that especially comes true as you start looking at retirement. And, you know, as you're older in life, that this, this begins to weigh heavily on you. Verse 12 says this, The sweet, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Love of wealth often causes a person to hoard themselves, even to the point of causing themselves suffering, so they can hold on to it. And even if it causes them suffering, they still do it. Again, that's kind of like that addictive property, right? Verse 13 says, um, There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owning to his hurt. Next, wealth is an insecure basis for happiness, right? We've already kind of looked at this. Um, it's not solid. It's not secure because it can be lost. Verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. Money is always going to disappear at the time of death. It will always go. And so if you only put your confidence in money and you only worship money and you only look now to money, you're not looking to what's afterlife. You're not looking to... Um, to heaven. You're not looking to any of those things. Verse 15 says, As he came from his mother's room, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. See, life is wasted when we spend it on a quest for money. And greed can overtake us. And we can end up worshiping money and things above worshiping God. And as we look elsewhere, we can see um, in the uh, parable of the sower, Matthew, um, we can see that wealth chokes out the word. Wealth itself can choke out the word of God. Ever think about that? Isn't that amazing? That money itself can choke out the word of God. Um, and one of the commentators said this. He said, the one, meaning Jesus, the one greater than Solomon would mince no words on this subject. The deceitfulness of riches is like a farmer's good seed sown among thorns. The thorns like riches choke the word of God in one's life, surrounded by fields and fields of money and possessions, the warehouse of the soul remained empty and barren. We can end up doing everything for ourselves, laying up treasures just for ourselves and never being rich towards God. Once again, this is Jesus. And uh, we're going to start on verse 15, drop down to verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How often do we think that's what our life consists of? How often do people, the society, we're born into that thing that our life consists of what you have, who you are, what job you have, where you go, what kind of car you drive, how big is your house, all of these things, and it becomes who we are. But Jesus said, take care, be on guard, don't let that happen. He told him this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my cops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich 
towards God. One of these dangers is that money just always ends up being on our mind, and money ends up always doing that. Why is that? Because our appetite is never satisfied. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. So, what is the attitude that God wants us to have? We want to look at that because clearly Scripture doesn't say, oh, this is horrible and be depressed, this is horrible and you know, this and that and everything else like that, right? But God says there is an attitude. There is something that I want you to do with money, right? Because he made it, he created it, so there is something. So, we live the big, beautiful, unbelievable house and we start on our journey, what we think is back home, and we see another house. We missed it the first time. It's just a normal-sized house. Nothing out of the ordinary at all. In fact, if we weren't really looking, we would have just driven right by it. But it's well taken care of. The lawn is mowed. The house looks like it was recently painted. There's a swing on the front porch. It's one of those swings that's just made for sitting on a warm summer night. You just want to sit out there and you just want to sing on a warm... Sw well, maybe you swing. You might want to sing. I don't know. Personally, I don't want to sing when I'm out on the porch, but swing. Anyway... Um, all that to say. Um, anyway, so this is the house that we look at. We go inside of this house, right? And this house is very neat. And it's just cozy. And it's just welcoming. And we start looking around at what everything is around there. We look in the walls. And there's a little picture that says, God bless this house. And there's flowers in a vase. And there's a Bible that's out on the coffee table. And we go on a little bit further. And we go into the kitchen. And just the smell of these fresh-baked cookies just washes over us. It instantly makes our mouth water. And we look at the fridge and we see the pictures of friends and of, and of families. And among those pictures of friends and families are some pictures of our prayer cards, of these smiling missionaries, these missionary families, or uh, missionary single people that they support. We can clearly see that they do. And they pray for these people. In addition to that, there's these three-by-five cards, and they've got Bible verses that they're either memorizing or it's just something that meant something um, to them. We can almost reach out and almost touch, almost feel the peace and the joy that is inside of this house. There is just something there that is unique. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Jesus, the rest of Scriptures teach us that all gifts are from God. All things are from God. And because they're from God, they are to be enjoyed. And we are to be thankful for them. But we don't trust in them. We trust in God. We don't worship them. We worship God. We don't give our hearts to them. But we give our hearts to God. And one of these attitudes that we have is when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said through the list, he's like, ask God for your daily bread. Ask him for your daily um, bread. And that reminded me uh, of Proverbs 30. We don't have an overhead because it, or I just reminded this. But um, he says this. This is one of the Proverbs. And this is chapter 30, verse 7. If you're taking notes, it's not written. Proverbs 30 uh, starts in verse 7. It says, Two things I ask of you, he's speaking to God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and I deny you. And I say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and I profane from the name of God. 
this writer realized the difficulties in both things of being rich and being satisfied with what we've done and thinking that we've accomplished it and that we don't need God. And yet the struggle that the poor has, and he's like, I don't want to steal. I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to do these things. Give me my daily bread, just as Jesus has asked us. Um, Jesus says this, um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we think about money, we, it is a gift, but it's not our treasure. Our treasure is Christ. Our treasure is God. Our treasure is the salvation that He has given us because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. He gives us this warning too in Matthew 6.24. He says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And once again, it goes with this, where's your heart? Who's your master? Who are you going to serve? Um, we are to be satisfied with what God has given us. From our passage today, verse 9, 6-9, uh, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. He calls us to be satisfied with what we have. He calls us to be content. And he's saying, look, it's better to see what you have and to be content than just this wandering appetite that is never fulfilled. And we continue to go on. Um, the preacher tells us, in a nutshell, um, to find, to find enjoyment in what you have, in what God has given to you. To find enjoyment in your work. To find enjoyment in your life. Because these are the things that God has given you. These things are gifts from God. Let's look at um, verse 18 through 20. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment. That's good. That's fitting. That's right, and that's in the context of money. If you take our passages and it's this long, and we've got this stuff below that we talked about, the first couple of houses, and we've got the second couple of houses back here, this is right in the middle. It's right in the middle of this passage. He says it's good to find enjoyment in this, to eat and to drink. And it's good to find enjoyment in all your toil, meaning work, with which you work under the sun, the days that, of life that God has given him, for this is a lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy it and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his tale. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That is the attitude. These are gifts from God. And we are to appreciate those and welcome those and enjoy them. We just don't worship them. We just don't put all of our um, you know, security in those things. We don't, you know... That's not our treasure. It is God. Um, and then just, I just want to uh, close with just these things. So as we looked in those things, I said, kind of look where you are, right? And you might be in this house or you might be in that house. You might be in any of these four houses. You might be in a house that doesn't quite fit that. You're like, well, I'm kind of here and I'm kind of there. Are there any more houses on the road? The answer is yes. There's lots of houses on that street goes up. We just looked at four of those houses, but you're in there somewhere. But it's important to realize that God will never leave you. And God will never forsake you. And God will never leave you on your, on your own, where you are. 
He will like, even like he was talking about the poor person, he will always provide, he will always protect. And again, our sight can't be short-sighted in that we need to see his love and his protection. And we need to see the big picture too. Because we have this, um, um, this salvation that Jesus Christ has given us, right? Because he's died on the cross. And with that, we're going to be taken into heaven. And we can see pictures in the Gospels. And we can see pictures in Revelation of what this is going to be like. And heaven is going to blow even this guy who's got the yacht and the helicopter and everything else just out of his water, right? And Jesus said, in my mansion are many rooms, right? And I'm going to take you to that. And we look at Revelations, we just see this amazing, beautiful, beautiful thing. And we think like, you know, um, even going back to like Philippians where it says, um, um, he who started good work in you, Okay, somebody help me. So you, you starting going with is faithful. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, this one's in my notes. I'm going through. I'm like, oh yeah, this passage and this passage and this passage. But I should have thought that one through. But basically, he started a good work in you, right? He's going to complete it. He's not going to forget it. He's not going to abandon you. He's going to continue to go. He started the work. He's going to complete the work. We don't know what that work looks like in here. Again, we're going to be in any of these houses, and we might move from house to house, right? We might be in this house today. We might be in that house tomorrow. We might be in the other house. But the thing that's consistent, the thing that's always there, is that God is always there. And his promises are always there. He will never leave you or forsake you. He started that, uh, that good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So... Um, let me just pray.